Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Have I told you that we're going back to Israel? Lord willing, uh, March of 2018. I've been thinking about Israel a bit this, this week, and thinking about our arrival there. Ben Gurion Airport has become a familiar destination for me and, and for my wife and, and for a handful of people here who have returned many times. I just love being there. You get out of the plane and you walk long hallways as you make your way toward ultimately baggage claim, but as you move along, you start to realize that there are Israelis everywhere and they are profiling you. How dare they? <laughs> profile you to protect their nation. What are they thinking? Anyway, that's going on. They're watching. They're paying very close attention. You come through. You go to the passport control first. You come through passport control. There are several measures of security. But ultimately, you empty out into a large, vast, kind of expansive room, and that's baggage claim. As you come into baggage claim, there is a big sign that meets you. It's on a large kiosk in the middle of baggage claim. Big white backdrop to red letters that simply say, in English, exchange. Now to the side and beneath there's Hebrew, there's Arabic that says the same thing, exchange. And that's where you go to make U.S. dollars turn into Israeli shekels. And... Uh, I just I, I can visualize that. I, I can see it there, that, that big exchange sign. I mean, I understand many airports have it, and I've had people even ask me before we go, do you exchange money here, do you exchange money there? But the whole point is, Israelis understand how to exchange money. And they always have. Israel has never been a stranger to financial exchange. It was as common in Jesus' day as it is now. Although, perhaps then it was a bit more exploited. You may recall the story in the court of the Gentiles, what went on there. The court of the Gentiles, that's the outermost court of the Jerusalem temple complex. That's the area that anyone could go. If you were non-Jewish, you could go into the complex, to the court of the Gentiles. You could see the temple inside the inner wall in that complex. Beautiful, stunning. You could even as a Gentile worship from there. You couldn't cross over the little three-foot wall that separated the court of the Gentile from the women's court and on into the other courts. Couldn't cross that. There were signs that said if you cross this, you do so under pain of death. But the Gentiles could camp out and could come in and could be included to a degree, as it were, with what was going on there. And in John chapter 2, in fact, keep a finger in 2 Corinthians, if you will, and turn back to John chapter 2. Just go left a few books and you'll get there. John chapter 2, we see Jesus coming into the the temple. This is now at the beginning of His ministry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospel writers, indicate that what is about to happen, what we are about to read here, took place not once but twice. Get that. Understand that. There's not a confusion on the part of John's. No, John is writing in his Gospel, and he mentions three Passover events. 
in this gospel. And in these three Passover events, it kind of, it's how we balance out and understand that Jesus' ministry was three to three and a half years because he, he attended three Passovers, the last one being his final Passover. And this is the first Passover Jesus comes to there in Jerusalem. And what he does here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us he does at the last Passover as well. Almost like bookends of his ministry. You might call them bookends of sanctification. Bookends of cleaning house. Watch what happens. John chapter 2 verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. I love it. Jesus was ticked. Jesus was angry. Now again, in the other Gospels, if you, if you read of the story of Jesus, what you see is the, the babe born in the manger there in Bethlehem. And you see the little boy who goes with his folks to the temple at the age of 12. And then you see him embark on his public ministry. And he's healing people and he's casting out demons. And he's walking on the water. And while he's doing powerful things, you get a real sense of the peace and the comfort that is being around Jesus. It's one of the things I love about Israel is when you go up into the Galilee, you get a sense of the country nature of Christ. That He was loving and laid back and gentle and welcoming. And so you don't see Him really get angry until the end of those first three Gospels. Well, John shows us right at the beginning. Jesus is fervently fuming. He is hot under the collar. Why? What is he so upset about? What's the big deal here? Jesus comes into that court of the Gentiles. So we might call it today the court of the non-believer. It might be the place where if if we had the same kind of setup today, the non-believer could come in this close and could kind of see what was going on and experience it and think about it and process it. And God provided for that in His temple court that though He had chosen the Jewish people, He still had an eye to the Gentile. He wanted to make sure there was an opportunity for some amount of inclusion. And so there is where this happened. The money changers were set up. In that location. And Jesus walks in and sees it. And He is fuming. There are two different words. And when we studied John, if you were with us, we talked about this. But let me refresh your memory. Two different words that designate or are translated money changers. We see money changers, the phrase used twice here. In verse 14 and then again in verse 15. But it's two different words in the Greek. The first time you see money changers, it's kermatistes. And kermatistes were the small coin dealers. The second time you see the word money changers, it's uh, kolobistes. The kermatistes and the kolobistes. The kolobistes were the currency exchangers. Small coin dealers and currency exchangers, and they worked in collusion. How so? The Kermitistes would only deal in Tyrian drachmas, 
That is the purest silver around. You're in the temple. You're bringing your offerings to God. You're bringing perhaps your, your, your finances in there. You want to spend money here. You got to do it right. You got to do it by the purest silver available. That's the Tyrian drachma. And if you don't have Tyrian, Tyrian drachmas, I'm sorry, you need to go see the Colobistes. So the peasant who perhaps only had some shekels or maybe the foreigner, the foreign Jew from another country who had the wrong kind of currency would then have to go over to the Colobistes and exchange the money there so then they could go back and deal with Kermit. Again, the Kermitistes. And exchange the small coins. Here's the thing. Josephus tells us that the money changers there in the temple would change the money out, certainly, and give you the Tyrian drachmas that you needed at upwards of 12.5% interest. Jesus walked into a scenario. It wasn't just that things were being bought and sold. It was that the people were being ripped. They were being scammed by their own. The Mishnah, that is the Jewish oral tradition set down in writing, actually tells us that this went on, this whole idea of money exchange and the people being burned by their own, this went on from Adar the 25th to Nisan the 15th on the Jewish calendar. In other words, the entire Passover season. It would be like in a Christian church, a church bazaar set up throughout Christmas. And as visitors came in, things were being bought and sold and people were being ripped off. And that's how we celebrate Christmas. And see, this is what was going on in the Passover, in the temple. And Jesus, Jesus was angry. You do not mess with God's people. And you do not mess like this in my house. And so Jesus upset their crooked cash cow. Turned over. I would just. I want to see the video. I do. It's on my list. I want to see Jesus picking up the pots of coins and turning them over, flipping the tables, driving out the animals. I want to see. I mean, that's power, man. Taking on Jewish businessmen. That is power. <laughs> so he does this. Listen to their reaction to him. Verse eighteen. The Jews then said to him. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing all these things? That sounds very proper and nice, but what they're actually saying is, Who do you think you are? How dare you come into our space and make this kind of mess? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You know, a side note there, my friends. Jesus is always speaking in the deeper, more real, eternal. But so often, religious people hear only the immediate, temporal, physical. And he says, destroy this temple. He's talking about his body. John will tell us that. They don't get it. It says, verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body, so that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. I tell you that and kind of start out with this whole idea because nobody understands a fair exchange better than Jesus. Nobody is more just than Jesus is just. Nobody is more concerned with with a level playing field that everybody has the the right opportunity. And that people are treated right and treated justly and treated fairly. After all, Jesus is the one who gave us the word of reconciliation. Go on back to 2 Corinthians 5. 
The word of reconciliation. Paul uses the word of reconciliation four times in his letters. Now there are other variants of it, but this specific word, reconciliation, four different times. The first time he uses it is actually here in 2 Corinthians 5, but let me go back to Romans chapter 5, a letter that Paul would write after this. And in Romans 5 verse 10, he writes, For if we were, were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, get this, the reconciliation. Not just reconciliation, but the article, the definite article is before it in the Greek. So it's the reconciliation, ho katalege. And then he says it again, Romans eleven fifteen. Speaking of Israel, he says, if their rejection is the reconciliation, second time we see it, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The reconciliation, it's a thing. He uses it again two more times in this letter to the church at Corinth. He says in verse 18, he calls it the ministry of reconciliation. And then he calls it in verse 19, the word of reconciliation. Now we were studying through on Wednesday night, kind of making our way through chapter 5 and chapter 6 and and processing so many treasures here and so many rich things to, to understand and, and we hit that line, the word of reconciliation, and, and honestly, I hadn't put a lot of thought into it. As I said earlier, as I prayed, it's one of those words that as a Christian, so long in my life, I've just come to understand that it's a Christian word. And if you ask me, well, define reconciliation, I'd probably say something before, like, oh, it's just it's what God did. It's what Jesus did, you know, it's the reconciliation. Yeah, but what does it really mean? Well, he, he, you know, he made things right. Okay, God has given us here the word of reconciliation. And since he's given us the word of reconciliation, and Paul so clearly underscores it, it might be a good idea for us as followers to know what that word means. And so I mentioned on Wednesday night, I think we're going to have to come back to this word of reconciliation and process it a bit. The word Again, the word is katalage in the Greek. You don't have to remember that, but it's a very specific word, and it literally means exchange. You might have seen if you walked into the Tel Aviv Ben Gurion airport back in Jesus' day, you would have seen katalage in big red letters with a white background. Katalage, exchange. As in the business of the money changers. Hmm. He's given us the money changers? No, not exactly. He's given us what the money changers were supposed to do. And I want to process through this. The katalage exchange is literally an exchange of equivalent values. So you go to the money changer, you have your American dollars, you hand them American dollars, and they give you whatever the currency rate is so that you get a fair exchange. The equivalent number of Israeli shekels for American dollars. It's an exchange that takes place. It's equivalent and it's supposed to be fair. But what God did, ah, you might call it the great exchange. The great exchange. This is the one that matters most. In the passage before us, God is three things Paul makes very clear. God is the source of reconciliation. He is the subject 
of reconciliation. And finally, He is the sender of reconciliation. The source, the subject, and the sender. So think about this with me. First, God is the source. Paul begins in verse 18 saying, Now all things are from God. Your Bible might say all these things, but the word these is not in the text. Paul is making a very declarative statement. Now all things are from God. That is, he's the source of all things. That Aristotle called him the prime mover. Aristotle, not a man of faith, certainly not a man of the Bible, a philosopher you all know from history. But he acknowledged there has to be something that got the ball rolling. There has to be something that began all that we see and experience and know now. The problem with the evolutionists is there's no prime mover. But even a lot of evolutionary scientists will say, well, yeah, there had to be a prime, it's something. You know, the spark or, or whatever it was, something had to be here. And I love asking the question, how did that something get here? Well, something else started it. Oh, okay. How did the something else get here? So Aristotle very wisely said there had to be something. Had to be a prime mover. Thomas Aquinas came along and changed it slightly. Thomas Aquinas, a man of faith, said that he was the immovable mover. That God did begin all things and he himself was not moved by another, but he has been forever. I know that's freaky to think about. Wait a minute, eternity passed? I can kind of wrap my head around loosely eternity going forward because I don't want to end. But to say that God always has been, that's, you know, parents, if you want to just freak out your kids, tell them that from time to time. He is the source. He is the immovable mover. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Remember that on election day. All things have been been created for Him. Paul, here in this section, is drawing a parallel between old creation and new. And he's saying all things come from God. Just as God was the source of life at the first, so now God is the source of new life at the last. Skip back to verse 17 and listen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And God is the source of that. Paul is saying just as he was the source of light in the beginning, the source of creation in the beginning, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, so now He is the beginning of your salvation. Now He is the beginning of you as a new creation. He's the source. Always has been, always will be. And Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 5, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, little g, and many lords, what is he saying there? He's saying that people put their faith in something. There are all kinds of little demigods, if you will, demons, honestly, that people put their faith in. But then Paul says, no, but for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist for Him. Paul makes it clear, now all things are from God. 
And that's critical to understanding the word of reconciliation. you got to start there. But secondly, not only is God the source, He is the subject of reconciliation. In other words, He is the point. Even in the passage, as you read through it, if you go back a few verses, it's, it's Christocentric. That is, it's, it's Christ-focused. It's, it's really talking about and looking at Jesus. But suddenly, in these few verses, there's a shift in Paul's writing, and it becomes what we would call theocentric. That is, God-centered. God-focused. And that's the perspective Paul lands on here. God is the source. God is the subject. In verse 18 again, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. God is the subject of the verse. God is the subject of the sentence, and He is the subject of reconciliation. God is always the subject. Do Do you know that? We are not. That God is always the point. That all of, of this that, that we do, and even the things that people do not knowing who God is, and, and the, the existence of this world and of history, God is the issue. God is the point. He is the subject of it all. Deuteronomy 4.39, Moses said, No, therefore, today... And take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Moses said that 3,500 years ago. Guess what? Nothing's changed. He is still the subject. Though people aren't talking about Him as much, at least in our country. Isaiah 45, verse 5. God said, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will clothe you, though you have not known me that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And Paul picks up on this in Romans 11.36 and says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's the subject. And a little side note, where God is the subject in your life, things make sense. Even difficult things make sense when he's the subject. When I make myself the subject, that's when I start to get confused. That's when life doesn't work out so well. No, God is the subject. And being the subject here, he is the subject, the focus of reconciliation. Okay, so what does that mean? What do you do with your checkbook? I know some of you use Quicken or other financial software. I'm not there. My daughter keeps trying to tell me, Dad, you, you got to stop doing the bills by hand. I'm like, I want to do the... I have so few things that I actually can control in my life. At least let me write the check. You know? <laughs> I get it. I'm old school. But what do you do? You reconcile it. If you use a checkbook or you use a computer program, whatever, you still seek to reconcile it. That's a good idea. It's important that you balance it out to be sure that what the bank says you have and what you think you have is the same thing. Because when it's different, that's not good. It's not good at all. In the practical human sense, you need to double check, you need to balance and and, and look over, reconcile your checkbook because the bank does make mistakes. Not as often as I do. Bank errors do occur, but but honestly, what I tend to find out when I sit down to reconcile is 
oh man, I left out the nine. Why did I leave out the nine? You know, you start to realize the little errors that you make here and there. And that's in a physical sense. But understand what I'm saying here. That people tend to think in their lives spiritually, things are pretty balanced. It's pretty balanced. My good outweighs my bad. You know, I've still got some moral equity I can draw from in in hard times. I can still lean on the the many good things that I have done in my life. So if if I'm just shooting from the hip here, I can tell you, balance-wise, reconcile-wise, I'm pretty good. Really? When was the last time you checked your balance? When was the last time you actually sat down and tried to weigh out the good versus the bad in your life? Let me tell you something. When you do, you find out you are overdrawn. Humanity is way overdrawn. Tom Cruise might say the flesh is writing checks the spirit can't cash. It's a Top Gun reference. Now, maybe not compare with other people. You know, your balance might look pretty good when you're looking around the church. Yeah, all right. Okay. It's been a pretty good week. I heard what that guy did, and I didn't do that. (laughs) So my balance is a little bit better. Or you look around the world, or you compare yourself to our current presidential candidates, and you go, I am doing great. And when the subject of reconciliation is other people, you're not doing so bad. But when the subject of reconciliation is a perfect God, I'm out of balance. In fact, I am deep in the red. I hear Jimmy Stewart saying, well, it's just another red letter day for the Baileys, you know. (laughs) It's a wonderful life. Red letter day, he's deep in debt. Doesn't know how to recover. And when you compare yourself, when you look on the balance sheet of your life versus that of a perfect God, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. It does not balance out. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And some of you ladies might say, yeah, I agree, there's not a righteous man on the earth. And then Paul says in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And John underscores in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Check your balance. Look at where you've come from. Compare that to the righteous perfection and spotlessness of a holy God. And we are all in negative territory. Now someone might say, well heard that kind of thing coming out of churches before. That's just Christian talk for a guilt trip. And I, I hear that sometimes. And what's funny to me, think about this. What would I or any Christian have to gain from trying to guilt trip people into church attendance and church involvement? You know what you get? You get the assembly of the ashamed. You get the fellowship of the forlorn. Woo, that sounds fun. Yeah, what I want to do is shame people and then hang out with them. Because, you know, hanging out with the shamed people is just a joy. It's a real treat. No, that doesn't make any sense at all. So why talk about sin? Why bring up our our overdrawn, our, our mess? Why talk about this? Because reconciliation begins with awareness that in light of a perfect God, I fall woefully short. 
And we need to understand that because just as assuredly as we will all strike camp, we talked about last week that, that this mortal tent is going to be torn down. There's no two ways about it. It's going to happen. As assuredly as that, so the bank of heaven will call in every last debt. Why? Because God is perfectly just. Because He's absolutely fair. You might want to ask yourself this morning, is there anything on the balance sheet of my life tucked away in the back drawer of a filing cabinet that I don't want anybody ever to see? Is there something back there? Something that maybe a spouse knows but nobody else. Maybe a friend knows but nobody else. And even now, as that thing comes up in your mind, you go, I cringe at the thought that someone might find this out about me, that it's on the balance sheet somewhere. I mean, in a spiritual sense, it's like fearing the call of the creditors in a physical sense. Having credit cards maxed out, owing the IRS thousands of dollars, and every time the cell phone bleeps or rings and it's not a number that you recognize, you go, (laughs) and this fear that perhaps ultimately you're going to get nailed. You're going to get found out. It's all going to come down. Hey, the issue again is not how good I am. It is how good God is. He is the subject. I am not. 1 John 1 verse 5, this is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Then John goes on to say, for we walk in the light. He wants us to walk in the light. So that if, we, if we're walking together in the light, we have fellowship with one another because we don't have anything to hide. And God cleanses us of all transgression through the blood of Jesus. You know what he's saying to you? And maybe even would be saying to you this morning, open the file drawer, pull out the file, get that balance sheet, that one thing nobody knows, and bring it, man. Just bring it. Lay it out before the Lord. Let Him deal with it. Because until He does, it's always back there. It's always sitting there. And my balance is always negative. Unless we are perfect ourselves to the last cent, we are in the red, lost in negative territory, saddled with debt we can never repay. Welcome to the great exchange. The great exchange. God sat down opened up the balance of your life and mine, and He reconciled us to Himself. Through Christ Jesus. You know how He can do that? He can do that because He's the subject. Because He's the issue, not me. And it's His perfection that must be satisfied. And so He satisfied His perfection. How did He do it? God is the source. God is the subject. And God is the sender. Look at verse 19. Namely, after he says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, 
reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Through the agency of Jesus, God, the subject, God, the source, God, the sender, sent his son. And so the ministry of reconciliation was inaugurated and was fulfilled by God in Christ. John 3.17 says God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. It's not why Jesus came the first time. But that the world might be saved through Him. Colossians 1.19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, that is the fullness of God, the divinity, to dwell in Him, that is Jesus. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. God reconciled us. And the sending of God was the coming of God. As we talked about Wednesday night, so God was in Christ, and now as God was in Christ before, now Christ is in you. So He's still doing the sending, but it's not Jesus now that He's sending, it's you, but it's Christ in you. Again, note verse 18, He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He didn't just say God gave us reconciliation, but the ministry of it. Now we are sent. It says in verse 19, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The sender sends you. Gives us the ministry. Gives us the word. And in verse 20 goes on, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is amazing. And we talked about Wednesday that we have the assignment of the ambassador, that we have an ambassadorship here in Jesus, by Jesus. But what's remarkable to me is, he says, it's as if God is making an appeal, as though God were making an appeal through us. That phrase, making an appeal, is one word. One word in the Greek, parakaleo, which is a word we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It means comfort. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the parakletos. Parakaleo is to speak comfort. So literally what he's saying is that as though God were speaking comfort through us. That is the assignment of the ambassador, the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. That exchange is a word of comfort that is ours to bring as we are sent. But there's a little problem here. Maybe you caught it. When you read this passage, you've got to ask the question, who is Paul talking to? It's kind of an obvious question. Who do you write the letter to? The church at Corinth. Very good. Okay, you're with me. Not Rome. Not Ephesus. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And so our Bibles tell us that as though God were speaking a word of comfort, making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see the problem? He's talking to Corinth. The church at Corinth. Do you see the problem? They were already reconciled to God. He's talking to Christians. It would be like me sitting up here saying, Hey, fellow believers, you need to get saved. What's the matter with you? Mitch, how long have you been going to church, man? A couple years, good. When did you give your life to Jesus? How long ago? 
40, 50, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Really, you need to be saved. You really need salvation. Can we pray for Mitch right now that he would receive salvation? Mitch has been one of our shepherds, a longtime brother in the Lord. Why would I tell him to get saved? Why would Paul tell the church at Corinth, be reconciled to God? Here's the answer. He's not. He's not. He is not talking to Corinth when he makes this comment. Okay, Rick, you're really confusing us. I know, I'm confused myself. Who is Paul begging to be reconciled to God? Look at the verse. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God and you is the problem. It's not there. In fact, you can righteously take a little pen and draw a line right through the word you because it's not in the text. It's not in the Greek. What Paul is actually saying is this is what we do. We are ambassadors. We are ambassadors and we beg on behalf of Christ. That's what we do. He's not begging the church at Corinth who are already reconciled. He's saying, no, what we do as as ambassadors is we beg on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We beg, and the ministry that we offer, the word that we offer is be reconciled. He's describing what they do in practice and in principle. And he's saying this to Corinth because they needed to understand both. They needed to understand the word of reconciliation both in practice and in principle. So let's understand it that way. In practice, in practice, the word of reconciliation is a word that we cannot offer unless we are in practice. Do you understand what I'm saying? You cannot tell someone to be reconciled to God if you yourself are not reconciled to people in your life. You cannot say, come take forgiveness when you're not willing to forgive. You can't offer a fair exchange when you are not offering a fair exchange in other aspects of your life. It's called hypocrisy. And we can't do it. Jesus talked about this back in Matthew 18. You can just listen or turn there if you'd like to, but Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus. Good old Pete. Peter's always asking the right questions. He's always blurting out, you know, the questions, but he, he really wants to know. This is what I love about Peter in the ministry of Jesus is this is the guy who really wants to know. He may goof it up, but he wants to know the truth. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often, this is Matthew 18, 21, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? See, the rabbi said, a righteous man will forgive up to six times. So Peter remembers that, adds one, and says, seven times, Lord? Because, you know, I'm I'm among the righteous. And Jesus replies, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Which many of us have figured that out. 490, okay, I can do that. 491, I'm done. You offend me 491 times, and I'm sorry, but that's the length of my forgiveness. No further, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about complete forgiveness which never ends. He's talking about the kind of forgiveness God offers you, God offers me. And so Jesus says to him, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. 
And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents is the equivalent of about 15 years of wages. So this is an amount that is irreconcilable. Let's put it that way. No way he can pay this off. Verse 25 says, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment was to be made. And that's what they would do. Debtor's prison. You can't pay your debt, you go to jail until you can. In other words, you're stuck in jail for life because you're not going to pay back a debt when you're in jail. Verse 26, So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him and said, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. No way. Not possible. But verse 27, The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. Zeroed the balance. Reconciled the whole thing. But that slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about a day's wage. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. This is what we call theological deja vu. It's the same thing, now replaying, but now among the servants. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So his fellow slaves saw what had happened. They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus says, and don't miss this, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That is the standard of the ambassador of Christ. That if I am given this ministry of reconciliation, but I refuse to reconcile in my own life, I don't have a ministry. I rip the rug right out from under my ability to offer someone the forgiveness of Jesus when I am unwilling to offer forgiveness somewhere else. We cannot take the message of the Gospel of Jesus if we are not living the message of the Gospel of Jesus. How much has God forgiven in your life? How cleansed are you before the Lord? And the fact that any one of us would ever, and I am guilty of this, but would ever hold unforgiveness in our hearts toward another person is is ridiculous. When a perfect God forgave me, an imperfect man, and I can't forgive someone else, the ministry of reconciliation, it starts right here, right at home. It begins in the church. In fact, I think that's part of the reason God gave us the church. You know, we can get a little haughty and arrogant and think the church is here to bring the gospel to the world. Well, God graciously invites us into that. But I'll tell you one of the main reasons I think the church is here is God throws us all into this mess of relationship and says, get along. Forgive each other. Practice here what I'm telling you to take to the world. And if we can't do it here, we're not going to take it there. Listen, when there's conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ. And there will be. I mean, let's understand that. Of course we're going to be in conflict. We're idiots. 
No offense. I may just have caused a conflict right there. Of course we're going to be in conflict one with another. But understand that nothing, nothing diffuses demonic division faster than reconciliation. Than being the one willing to say, I'm sorry. My bad. In my family we call that taking the downside. Are you willing to take the downside for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ to offer them the opportunity to forgive you even if you didn't do anything wrong? Which reminds me of something else that that Jesus said, this behavioral standard He laid out. He did it in His Constitution. Best Constitution ever spoken in history. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. But it's Jesus Magna Carta. And in fact, I believe it is the Constitution for the coming kingdom. And in this, Jesus makes this comment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, He says, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And many of us here this morning would go, Whew, I haven't committed murder, so I'm good there. My ledger looks pretty good in the murder column. You know, I don't have any names under that. All right? He says, I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Oops. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And that scared me to death when I was a kid. Because I called my brother a fool all the time. But Jesus is making the point, this is a heart issue. This is far more than the actions of murder. It's the murder of the heart. It's when you murder someone, you take them down with your words. You refuse to reconcile or to bring them the comfort of forgiveness. You are acting on murderous thoughts. And so Jesus says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I mean, did you hear how he said it? He didn't say, if you have a problem with your brother, go make it right. He said, if you know you have a brother who has a problem against you, it's your responsibility to fix it. Come on! I'm not the one who did anything wrong here. And Jesus says, it's my responsibility now to go make things right. Exactly. Exactly. Why should I reconcile when he's the one with the problem? I don't have a problem. He's got a problem. She's the issue. That's not fair. Not fair. I know your parents never hear that from your children. He got more juice than I did. That's not fair. I'm like, you want more juice? There you go. (laughs) Here's the thing about reconciliation. You've got to understand. It's not fair. It is not fair. In fact, the word of reconciliation is no different than getting ripped off by the money changers in the temple, which is why we started there this morning. That unfair exchange that was happening that that so incensed Jesus, that so upset Him, in a way, that's the word of reconciliation. Wait, what? Listen again to the definition of reconciliation. Katalage. It is an exchange of equivalent values. Now, if that was the only definition, I'd be good with it. 
Alright, Luke and I have a problem. Let's exchange honestly and I get what I need to get and you get what you need to get and we're equivalent and we're good to go. That's not the only definition of katalage. In fact, it's also the equitable adjustment of a difference in values. He owes me more than I owe him. Now I'm just giving an example. He doesn't. We're good. He owes me more than I owe him. How do we make that right? Well, according to the word of reconciliation, we zero the balance. We zero it out. Well, that's not fair. He owes me more. It doesn't matter. Reconciliation has nothing to do with what's fair for you or fair for me because already, already the unfair has taken place. See, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love doesn't keep a ledger. Love offers forgiveness and lets it go. You know the whole, I'll forgive him, but I won't forget. Well, then you haven't forgiven. In my spiritual opinion, you've not let it go. No, true reconciliation is not fair. It is a rip-off. It's unjust. It is the innocent for the guilty. Oh. That's the whole point, isn't it? Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Verse 21 is such, is such a standalone verse. Some scholars have even wondered about the placement of it because it doesn't seem to just flow. It just it stands out as a spiritual, biblical, scriptural truth that needs no context. You could throw this anywhere in the Bible and it stands. This could be a book unto itself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, or literally he made him who knew no sin, sin. On our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the word of reconciliation. That's how God reconciled the world. It is not fair. It was a complete rip-off of God. But it's what He did. Can you wrap your heart around the absolute inequity of the cross of Jesus? The inequity that a perfect man would go up and be nailed up though he did nothing ever. I mean, not only just in that day or that week or that month, but ever the spotless lamb nailed up, bleeding out in a completely unfair scenario. And by the way, in that, God revealed us who he is. It wasn't until Jesus was lifted up on the cross that we ultimately realized who God is. God is love. And love doesn't seek for equity in the relationship. Love takes the inequitable, the unfair, and zeroes out the balance. Isaiah 53 verse 10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And the old Scottish pastor, quoted by Alistair Begg, he said, let's not sentimentalize it. This is not some green hill far away. 
It is the scene of the greatest atrocity in history. Calvary is quite literally a shambles. Bible students, do you remember what a shambles is? It's a meat market. It's a slaughterhouse. And this old pastor went on to say God's lamb is being slaughtered on a garbage heap outside the city in darkness by a brutal soldiery and God is responsible. Who hung Jesus up on the cross? People say the Romans did it. Oh, the Jews did it. Or those who were a little more gracious say humanity did it. Wrong. God did it. He was pleased to crush him. Completely unfair. Hey, next time you feel like it is unfair to reconcile with someone in your life, consider the cross. You look at Jesus. That is the word of reconciliation. That is the message of reconciliation that we have been given because when it was all said and done, it was anything but fair. And you remember what Jesus did in that moment, looking down from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's reconciliation. The great exchange. Luke tells us in Luke 23:46 and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said Father into your hands I commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last and by the way that's a key to reconciliation Father into your hands I commit my spirit I belong to you Father I belong to you God and therefore any wrong done against me I don't need to be paid back for I don't need to be taken care of because I commit myself to you And therefore, I am committed now to the ministry of reconciliation, both in practice, but also in the principle. That dying in my place, God made the great exchange. And so we, like Paul, can simply say, be reconciled to God.